everybody. Welcome back to the Better Call Saul Insider Podcast. This is episode 406, Piñata. This is written by Jennifer Hutchison and directed by Andrew Stanton. And I'm Chris McCaleb. Thank you for listening. Kelly Dixon, unfortunately, is not joining us again this week because she is still in New York and she's tied up in a mix. So we miss you, Kelly. But we are joined, as always, by co-creators, executive producers, Peter Gould and Vince Gilligan. Hey! Hello! And we're also joined by Joy Reinish. Hi. And we have two very special guests today. The already mentioned writer of this episode, Jennifer Hutchison. Hello. Hello. Yay. It's Hi. good to see you. You too. Uh, and we have one of the stars of this episode, one of the stars of this, <gasps> of this series. And who could it be? Probably one of the stars of my heart. <laughs> you I know him you. as Howard Hamlin. It's Patrick Fabian. Yay! Yay! I will also be playing the role of Ray Seahorn and Bob Odenkirk. And uh, you know what? I won't play Jonathan Banks, but I will play Giancarlo as well. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Thank you, uh, Patrick and Jenny, who have, both have lots of other things to do. So they, busy. They made time so for this. Made so time busy. For I can't believe I'm here. I can't believe I'm here either. Uh, You're getting ready for the Malibu. Try talking about the Malibu triathlon. Oh, hey! If you have any extra change in your pocket, I am doing once again for the 13th year in a row the Nautica Malibu Triathlon, representing Children's Hospital Los Angeles this coming September. So you can log on to that. Peter said he's going to do it with me as well. Vince might do it as well. Chris, you in? Oh, when is it? Well, uh, yeah. I can't do it then. I'm so sorry to hear that. That's Maybe Mike sad. Behrman Trout would do it. I can get a wetsuit that fits him. I swear. Ooh, Mike. What do you say, Mike? You know I'm a bear, right? It's not a no. It's not a no. <laughs> I'll hold your towel for you when you get out of the ocean. Wow. The, you heard that. Vince Gilligan will hold my towel, ladies and gentlemen. That's high profile. That's great. <laughs> that um, would kill me. I was like, they'd find me floating in the bed, <laughs> face down. <laughs> Who's the guy that, like, it blew my mind when you said the guy who always kills it, the other... Uh, um, Every year, the guy. Oh, who's... John Cryer. Yeah, right. John Cryer, who uh, I, I don't mind saying, I think has even less body fat than Mario Lopez, if that's possible. And uh, <laughs> he comes in, he looks a little harried, and then all of a sudden the gun goes off, and like a penguin, whoop, he's through the water. And then like a, an Olympian, wham, he's on the bike, and then he runs and he gets a t shirt and stands on the podium every year. And the one year he did it, he had to win. Why? Because he was hosting the Emmys, where he, that's right, won an Emmy as well. So really, no offense to John, he may have peaked on that very day. I may have seen him the morning of his peaked uh, day of life. He, he did a friggin' triathlon. He won the triathlon. Won a triathlon, and then an hour later, and then went, what, got right into a Got right into, into a, a limo, I imagine, changed and had all the groomers in the car. Hosted the Emmys, and then I don't think he presented himself with one, but that would have been the height of that's fucking insane. Of self love, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, that is let, amazing. That is incredible. And do you think that all of that is just a long, extended part of the movie Hiding Out? Yeah, like all of this is a part of that. Wow. Chris, I love nice. you so much for that reference. <laughs> nice, oh dig, my deep, God. dig deep, dig um, deep. Well. The podcast is not going to get better than that, so let's just call it up. Thanks, <laughs> Thanks a lot everybody. for listening. Um, so, no, let's get into this episode. Um, this uh, I edited this episode, and that's all you need to know. The end. <laughs> uh, no, this is uh, starting right off with the teaser. This is the first time this season that we have seen Chuck. Yeah. That's right. That's this one, huh? I love this yeah. teaser. Yes. That's yeah. right. At what point in the writer's room did you guys figure it's going to be Chuck and we're going to actually bring Michael McKeon, the amazing Michael McKeon back. And we're going to see him in the flesh live. A guy who's not on the show anymore. I think it was pretty early on. We knew we wanted to bring Michael back in, um, in some sort of flashback scenario. Uh, cause we love him. And because, um, 
you know, while we definitely had closed off a very particular chapter of his and Jimmy's life, that doesn't mean there isn't still insight to find uh, in Jimmy by by having him on the show. But it was sort of at what point is the right point to bring him in? Um, and it was sort of fun to wait until late mid-season to actually bring him back. Um, and then it was just a question of in what capacity. We knew it had to be a flashback. Um, we've seen so much of their past and kind of conflicts. And so we also thought it might be fun to kind of see a little bit more of Kim and Jimmy's relationship since the season is so centered really on on that relationship and to see kind of a moment of, you know, Jimmy very clearly falling for her. And then we especially like the idea that she, as she has in so many ways planted the seed in his head about things that she sort of actually planted the seed of maybe I can be a lawyer. Uh, and so it all kind of came together in in that. And we also really like the idea of Kim, this being maybe one of the first moments where Kim has seen um, the Chuck-Jimmy dynamic and how kind of condescending Chuck is and how Jimmy almost doesn't even notice it, you know? And, and so it was also, like, we wanted to be able to sort of tell, a, tell something about all these characters in this scene. And that is so brutal. The way that Chuck just, it's so, <laughs> it's so casual the way he yeah. dismisses him. And uh, which is right before Patrick walks in. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's so funny you talk about this. I want to come to his defense immediately. I'm like, he doesn't treat him badly. <laughs> He's got a business to run. He's just coming from being a real lawyer, not an Oscar pool guy. <laughs> and, and part of that is because, you're right, it took a long time for him to come back. You know, I was just talking to somebody about the very beginning of the season, not to rewind too much, but it didn't really dawn on me that Michael was no longer going to be there as a character with me or as a, a, as a partner in crime as an actor until that first day. And that first day that I had was with uh, Ray and Bob in front of the burned house. Mm. Right. And and I think my naivete of, even though I had foreknowledge and, and Peter and Vince had been very clear uh, at the end of last season that he was dead, I don't think I'd accepted it until I stood there because I used to always be in those scenes with my mighty Michael McKean and I always thought, well, Michael's in the scene so it'll be good no matter what. <laughs> and it really was that sense of reliance because I had a lot of scenes with him. And then to have him not there was a real like limb loss. And so we get to 406 and, and now everything's good again, right? We're all good, everyone's in their right place, Jimmy's right. pushing the cart. Uh, Kim is, is, is doing her thing and I, I feel like it's so funny I have feel like a great energy with Kim because I feel like I've already had my eye on her and I know that she's I'm grooming her like right. I already feel like that's a beginning of that but it's a great big swinging dick moment when all of a sudden I guess gets to swoop in and see him and if we if we had the if we had the uh, the behavioral manners of high fiving, we would. But because of who we are, I just say, "Let's go drink by ourselves." Right. You know? <laughs> Which, by the way, in the middle thank of the you, day. thank you, Jen, because of course we're not drinking the stuff we're drinking later in the show. Right. You know, we're drinking you know the stuff on the way up. Which is uh, decidedly different. Oh yeah! Oh, I definitely. Good attention to detail, Mr. Bushmills. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. No, nothing wrong with that. But it's not the McCall. It's a stepping stone, though. Absolutely. It's a gateway whiskey. Yeah, we did have a conversation about what was the appropriate whiskey. A lot of conversation. A lot of conversation. I think we. Yeah, and I have to say also one of the. I just love how this scene is written and acted. Jenny, Jenny's. Oscar pool dialogue oh. makes me laugh every single time. <laughs> and and we actually had an interesting, it was an interesting thing because the, the, the case that Kim talks about oh, yeah. is, was almost, it kept on being too interesting. Oh, uh, yeah. And it, it was, it was like, I, I, you know, we almost never have to uh, rethink anything, but the, Jenny writes so well and she tells stories so well that 
in some versions of this, that case was riveting, and you wanted <laughs> yeah. to hear, you wanted to hear, you wanted to hear more about it, and so and uh, so you know, it, and who knows? I actually, as as it plays, I am interested in that case, and who knows? Maybe. Maybe it'll come back. It'll come back at some point. But it's a yeah. completely made up case. It's completely made up. Um, yeah, I probably, I took a crack at that scene a few times because I think the original version was maybe too boring and then the second version was too conversational and interesting and so then the third version was kind of like trying to find the middle ground. No, it's a completely fake case based on sort of um, research and kind of scenarios. And then the case law that they cite, I believe, is accurate. Mm. But the name of the case itself, which is also um, for people who know me and my love of video games, there is a video game reference in the name of the case um, for all of you fans out there who might notice that. Yes, no. it's, it's Pac-Man. No, it is not. It's the uh, last one I remember. <laughs> State versus, uh, versus, yeah, versus yeah. Pac-Man. Um, <laughs> I'm always trying to get references in, and I managed to get that one through, so that was exciting. Um, and then the Oscar pool, I mean, I'm a big movie buff, and I love – Emma Thompson is – one of my absolute favorite actors. She's so pragmatic. And I, she's so pragmatic. <laughs> um, she's kind of like a model for me. Um, and when we realized the year that we were in, and I realized that that was the year of that movie, I got really excited <laughs> um, to kind of play with all the dialogue nice. and yeah. create Clara. I met her and, once. You know. She was very nice. Uh-huh. She's a I'm very player. jealous. Very smart. Now I'm curious when you when you said uh, you, you wrote it once conversationally, and then it was too technical. In between that, and this is because I don't know, is that you self editing like making a pass at it sitting on it and then looking at it again or is that uh, bringing it to the table in the writer's room and yeah that's based on notes um you know because peter reads my draft i mean obviously i take as many passes as i you know do when i'm writing it myself and then peter read it and was like oh let's make it a little more conversational oh, okay so i did and then it was i think i think that's how it went it's, i think it was too conversational or maybe it was a little too long and you wanted it shorter which I, made it more conversational i don't I know don't, i don't know yeah. all i can all i can one thing we don't there are a lot of shows where they do table scripts, which yeah, means we basically we the shows bring the script into the writers' room and everybody gives notes to the to the writer. We that's don't, not, that we sounds don't, awful. We don't do, we don't do, we don't do, we don't do that. Uh, it's just it's you know it's more it's just a, it's just a com- it's more about just a conversation. Okay, uh, and it's and I don't remember how that you know this. The, how that worked? How that worked here? But it's it's a it was a, it was a great script the first time I read it, and it's a great script on screen. It's just it's just terrific. Yeah, that, and also I, the other thing I, I have to point out in the scene that I love, I love how Ray plays her admiration uh, for for Chuck. Yeah, Kim's Kim truly admires Chuck. She's very impressed by him. She's excited when he uh, realizes who she is. Uh, and it's just it, it it brings you that as much as anything else about the scene, the way it's shot, or that brings you kind of rewinds the tape about and this it is not the earliest scene we've seen Jimmy in Albuquerque, but it is the earliest we've ever seen Kim Wexler. Oh. This is the oh. first time we've oh, seen. Okay. Well, this is the first time we've seen Kim Wexler before she became a lawyer, and so the, and in some ways that's the revelation to me about the scene. Oh yeah. How many years ago is this? Did, uh, this is a ninety-three. Yeah, because ninety. Two is, I believe, when Howard's end. Yeah, yeah, it's ninety three. Oh, yeah, so go. it's right before the right yeah. before the Oscars in ninety three. And I and I always forget what year are we now on Better Call Saul? Two thousand three. Two thousand three. Right now, yeah. Yeah. Oh, so like ten years. Ten years. I like it. I like yeah. it. Lots changed in ten years for yeah. people. 
Yeah. Well, what's interesting is this scene is Kim taking her shot. Like she thought long and hard, if I get a chance to talk to Chuck, what am I going to say? Oh, smarty that, flirtatious stuff. Y- yeah, exactly. Lawyer flirt stuff. <laughs> right, I right. heard that. That is both <laughs> smart, but also respectful <laughs> and not second guessing him, but showing that I've been thinking about it. It's the, you know, the Hermione Granger moment. She <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we go, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no, go, great. go, go. No, Kim, you know, I, I love working with Ray. This is not, uh, you know, news. Uh, and I, I learned from her, just like I learned from Michael McKean, watching the depth and the layers of the study that they do and what they bring. And in, in a moment like this, you know, you give her that, you give her that writing that has that depth, and but she delivers it with that kind of, like you see the seeds of who she is. And like you said, she's managing to, to make her gambit, but it's not in a cloying nor is in a supplicant kind of way. It's it's that that's a moment of being able to say like, I know things too. Right. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's beautiful because McKean, uh, well, Chuck, rather, you know, recognizes that and, and appreciates that. I, he, right? He appreciates intellect above all. Yeah. So, yeah. And he tests her. It's a great moment for her. Like, and he plays this game with her where he says, oh, what's the case law right. on that? And he clearly knows, but it's a test. I mean, it's, 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 I mean, I think it's a scene that has happened in the real world many times. Yeah. That thing when you're trying to move up a ladder and you're trying to impress your boss and they want to be impressed by you and it's sort of, it's a little bit of theater that you're doing. Yeah, you know? yeah. But I, I'm not as tough on Chuck here as you guys are. I, or maybe I'm, I shouldn't speak for everyone. I mean, here, Jimmy's being kind of a dummy. He's being, you know, and, and <laughs> brothers, because I have a brother, and, and my brother yitzes me, and I yitz him. And so I, I, and he's not, if he were also condescending to, to Kim, then he'd be just an arch villain here. But he, he really, like you just said, he wants her, he wants to, he's rooting for her. You know, yeah. especially because... You know, in a very pragmatic sense, uh, he and uh, he and Patrick and the and the uh, firm are paying for her, paying her tuition, helping her become a lawyer. They, they want their money to go to a good. <laughs> exactly. they want know, to be let, well let's, let's not bring out the whole tuition thing. It's still sort of a sore point for me <laughs> for season three, but that's cool. One thing I just want, before we before we because uh, boy, we have a lot of episodes Sorry, to talk about. But I want to just mention that this episode was directed by Andrew Stanton. Yeah. Yes. Uh, of course, you know the the brilliant actually. Oscar-winning director. Yeah, that Andrew our, Stanton. That Andrew Stanton. <laughs> yeah, our one of the first, first employees of Pixar, like that's five right. or six yeah. or something like that. Oscar winner. He's on his way to an EGOT. Uh, yeah. He's starting to, I heard him practicing in the uh, in the scout van, to s- singing. He's practicing singing to get the, uh, for his album, look for that. But he is, Andrew, Andrew's a really, uh, it, it's a, it's, it was interesting to me to meet him and, and to get a work with, you worked with him more, Jenny, of course. Yeah. Uh, but you know he's he's very down to earth. He's a very he's a very humble guy. Uh, I, I was I knew right away. Uh, actually, I was watching Stranger Things uh, season two, and I, there were a couple of episodes. And I said, "Wow, there's something something special about this episode. There's something I really like about it." And uh, he he directed them, and this oh. was so. This is mm. he's only. He's obviously he directed John Carter, which was a live action, a live action, huge live action feature. Brian uh, Cranston was in. That's yeah. right, and he uh, and he's directed two two Stranger Things, but this is only this is only second time he's worked in television, yeah. and man, he just crushed it. We are honored. Yeah, yeah he did great. He's, <clears throat> I mean, obviously coming from a place like Pixar, which is a really collaborative, you know, working environment. Like he, even though it's animation, again, like. 
those things are so translatable. And, you know, having that collaborative background, I think, was so useful. And he came in just ready to kind of like be a part of this team and kind of deliver this vision. Um, and he's he was amazing with the crew, like just really great with the crew. I felt like I don't know. Patrick can talk more about that, but it felt like he had a good rapport with you guys, too. Yeah. He treated me like a cartoon and I acted like one. So. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I mean, that's the best. <laughs> Pretty OK with the me. Best way, it was a real so. Wally quality. To yeah. We just did all of episode. it mocap. So, <laughs> Wally. Wally is so good, you guys. Watch beautiful. it. If you want to learn about I, storytelling, I, watch Wally. Full disclosure, I had not seen Wally. Oh, I, I, I just, I knew, I, it's been on my list. It's like a perfectly structured it's, it's, movie. It's, it's really, incredible. yeah, it's, it's a great beautiful. film. Wow. And uh, I, I watched it the week that he was here working with me because I felt like I have to have seen it. And also Joey has the toys in his office, like the, yeah. is that embarrassing? No, he, no, he, okay. way, way to call them out, Chris, that's yeah. cool. Yeah. No. I, I think they're cool. I mean, I'm a, I am a collector of things as well. So, I, you know, it's I, we all like ephemera. We're all interested in movies and memorabilia. Andrew signed them too, so. Yeah, oh, he yeah. signed his, his oh, Wally nice. and his, his Eve toys. Nice. Uh, t- toys is the wrong word. They're They're, they're Collect- like statues, basically. Yeah. Collectibles. They're, they're, they're beautiful. Collectibles, yeah. Yeah, it was. I'm glad I finally watched it, and I'm glad I could actually say I really love that movie yeah. and not be, not was, not just avoid the topic. He was really was gracious, movie. and he was really open. And he was also very open about being like, "This is kind of new to me." He goes, "I'm used to doing this other thing." So he goes, "We're we're in this together," which not everybody would be, you know, coming from uh, the such wild success that he's already, you know, attained. So I had a great time working with him nice. without a, without a problem whatsoever. I was just uh, last week, uh, the wonderful Jen Carroll, uh, my assistant, and I went up to uh, Northern California. I was on MythBusters Junior. What? And uh, this is going to sound like the weirdest, pointless, most pointless segue, but there is a point to it. This little soundstage, uh, sound stages, and uh, this this very nice but modest uh, sized. Uh, facility with sound stages. It's a sound stage where the Millennium Falcon was first filmed. What? You know, the, the oh. models. It was it was oh, ILM. It uh, was ILM's headquarters. Wow. Uh, and then they showed us this fellow named Sean, who's one of the owners of the place, took us on this amazing tour. And he takes us. Uh, you know, he shows us the uh, very world's very first THX theater. Mm-hmm. And, Incredible. And then as we're walking down this hallway, it was so awesome. Yeah, exactly. That, that's. Uh, <laughs> it was so awesome. And then we're walking down the hallway, and and this place, it's very nice, but it's not. It's not what you're picturing in your mind's eye when I, when I, when we, when we, when we think of such things. It's a very modest looking, place. It's not fancy. And you're walking down the the hallway and he says in behind that door that's where pixar first started and we're talking about a room the size of the room we're in now i mean (laughs) it's just nothing not big not big not impressive not and he says that's uh and we couldn't he could the door was locked at that point he couldn't show us inside but that's where pixar started yeah and it was so cool it was so neat i want to go there I, i there's a if you get a chance if you search on youtube you can actually find home movies that were taken during the production of the uh, special effects for Star Wars. And what you see is it's a lot of long-haired, very young people who are right <laughs> out of college, uh, you know, pulling all-nighters, drinking drinking a lot of drinking a lot of coke. It's a nostalgic thing for me to see because it well, not that nostalgic because the truth is that, you know, all uh, we think of some of these things as being high technology and there is technology involved, but you know, the truth is it's human sweat 
an attention yeah. that makes everything makes everything work. I got my timeline a little wrong. You're right. Star Wars. I guess they're shooting in '76. Came out in '77. They were in Van Nuys doing that stuff. They told me, but the place, the facility I was in, I think they built it in '79. So I think they were using it first on. Empire. Empire Strikes yeah, Back, yeah. yeah. But that's, it was awesome. It was awesome being up there. That's yeah. when it was, uh, yeah, that's when it it, it was uh, when George Lucas, he got to, he put, plowed his own money back into the thing. He took yeah, a big risk. That's awesome. Never use your seems, own money. Seems to have paid. Seems to <laughs> seems have Seems to have worked in his case. Yeah, you know, Speaking fine. of taking big risks, Thank Kim you. Wexler, uh, <laughs> you know, she, she took segue. a big risk to, to start the, this relationship with Mesa Verde, but as we kind of pick up with her in this, in Act 1, She's clearly super distracted because her heart is really pulled into yeah. these these PD files, and um, and then she going to bed sees that Jimmy still has his heart in something that maybe she doesn't still have her heart in this Wexler McGill thing, and uh, the 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 scene in the morning uh, more juicing more, more orange juicing. juice yeah. Uh, there's more juicing maybe per per minute in this season than, than uh, we've ever seen before. There's a lot of juice. And I, I don't it's know why. It's just a fun transition. I thought it AMC is. was going to. Really I thought AMC was going to promote this season that way. More juicing. More yeah. Juicing. More juicing. Definitely. Instead, they keep going back to the uh, the Breaking Bad tie-ins. I don't know why it's just not more. Juicing is very popular. That's true. That's true. And we know Gordon Smith loves it. (laughs) In this scene in the morning is when things kind of come to a head. And Jimmy reveals to Kim that he's decided not to go to see a therapist. Yeah. That she suggested he go to. That she very kindly and very generously, um, you know, lovingly suggested. And he's... After the events of the last couple episodes, including his encounter with Howard in the bathroom, you know, he's come to this and and why now? Like, why is this the point? And why does Jimmy have to torpedo all the good things in his life? I guess is what I'm asking. I think, you know, I think so much this season is about, um, you know, everyone deals with grief differently. Um, and some people deal with it in a way that society would look at as more healthy, you know, and, and processing it in a timely fashion and in ways that you're supposed to, you know, you go to therapy, you go to encounter groups, you do, you know, those sorts of things. Um, some people stuff it. Some, there's, there's an infinite amount, variety of ways to deal with grief and, you know, none is more or less valid than the other. Um, the thing that's going on with Jimmy for me sort of going through this season is how he's dealing with his grief is not, while it's not invalid, it's certainly not helpful for him and his development as a person. Um, and Kim sees this and, you know, Kim loves Jimmy, um, and she wants him to process his grief in a way that she is comfortable with and and she sees that he's able to get through it and continue his life. Because you know, not only did he lose his brother, he, he lost a person who was kind of a villain in his life, which makes it even more complicated, you know, because it's like, I love my brother, but also he was an asshole and he did crimes to me. And though she doesn't know this, like he's also processing the fact that he uh, feels culpable you know, in in what happened to Chuck. Obviously, Chuck made his own decisions, but Jimmy helped create an environment in which those decisions kind of came to pass. Um, So 
I think what she's doing so much in this is trying to find ways to get him to process grief in a way that she recognizes and understands and that will allow him to continue his life because he seems fine. You know, he's like, I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I'm working. I'm doing this stuff. Um, but she perceives that he is not fine. In the previous episode, he has that moment where it's like, okay, maybe I'm going to do this. Maybe I'm going to go into therapy. And he sees Howard and is like, that is clearly not working. Howard. Why the hell? Let's not blame Howard. (laughs) But, you know, it's sort of interesting because that's Howard's process, which is also really valid and will come to a different conclusion. Um, And so... But the thing that we wanted to do was, you know, Jimmy so often, it's funny you say, you know, he always messes things up, but like, uh, you know, Jimmy could lie to Kim here and he doesn't. He chooses to tell her the truth. So he's actually making a decision that is healthy and um, appropriate to say to her, I'm not going to do therapy. I know you wanted me to, but it is not the right fit for me. So what he does is actually really pretty functional. Um, But again, because we know Jimmy and because Kim knows Jimmy, we also can perceive that part of it is deep down. This is my interpretation when I was doing the scene, um, that he is avoiding things. And, and so when, when Kim hears that, you know, she respects it and loves that. But it also is like, look, if he's going to make these decisions and say this is the best thing for me, it kind of frees her up in a way to make the decisions that are going to be best for her. Mm-hmm. And at this point, you know, sticking to Wexler McGill maybe isn't the best the best decision for her. She really, you know, she worked herself so hard last season that she almost died in a car accident. This season, she's well on her path to doing that again, you know, because she has to remain financially solvent. Um, but she also wants to pursue the thing that makes her happy. And so she has to find the solution that's going to allow her to do that. And she can't just keep bending herself to Jimmy and Jimmy's dreams when he himself is saying, I have to do what's best for me. That's really the core of that. I have to do what's best for me. And she has to trust that. So why not trust herself that she's going to do the thing that's best for her? That was the long version. No, that no, is but that's, the a, most... that's a great key. I, <laughs> hadn't, I hadn't thought about it like that, but you're right. It's like a, it's, it's, it's a moment where all of a sudden you're like, oh, oh, now I see. You've given me at least clarity, and now I can operate on my side of the street with yeah. less guilt. Because you're going to yeah. do your thing, so I'll do my thing. I'll do my thing. And, yeah. you know, another thing that I was... And again, this is just my head coming into this scene, and, you know, I know that Ray has what she feels is going on and Bob has what he feels is going on and all of those are total all, all valid um, I also really love the idea of you know when um, the person you love is under stress and under strain um, and you want to be supportive you yourself have to be in your best place in order to be a good partner for them and I know Ray and I specifically talked about that that idea mm-hmm. of like you know Ray can't or Kim can't be working herself to the bone here because she has to be like strong for Jimmy. And so the best way for her to do that is to be in a job situation that's workable for yeah, her. So sense. that was another thing that kind of we talked about a little bit. And that's sort of, you know, again, that's all the stuff that kind of goes into like the thought process when you're making these scenes. And then they just sort of take on a life and they're open to interpretation. And yeah. Right. And then so that's what Jen thinks about and thinks about and reshapes and does and puts to uh, a pen to paper. And then it gets into an actor's hand like me. And I go, hmm. Hey, can I say it like this instead? (laughs) (laughs) This has been a very different year for you. We've seen a very, and I think I said this last year too, because we were seeing shades of Howard that we hadn't seen. But this is yet another side of Howard this whole season. I mean, after Jimmy, I mean, he was already dealing with grief. But after Jimmy allowed the transfer of guilt 
uh, in that 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 last scene oh, of the, yeah, of you the first the, episode, it's your cross to bear. Yeah, yeah. F you, right? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? It's right. a crazy thing to I'm say. I'm trying to dig myself out of one more hole. Trying to make. Try. No, I'm not. I'm digging myself. I'm trying to take care of him one more time because the evidence backs me. I'm sorry, I'm a little hot about this. <laughs> but honestly, from the beginning of the show, from the very beginning, when he calls, he calls me Lord Vader, and then tries to extort me in my office. All the stuff that's been going on from my behavior has really to try and help him out and to shield him from his brother's wrath and then to help get him a job at Schweikert with a great, you know, the, the, he's got the desk and the, and the car. And then even after the fact, I go to him after his brother has killed himself and I try and take him off the hook for that by letting him know that I'm the one who probably did it. And his best response is, you have a cross to bear? Fuck you. That's what I guess. <laughs> I'll tell you what. Uh, that's the best uh, justification I've heard for all of Howard Hamlin's behavior in this entire series. Well, it's, it, it's, it's, it's all there. It's all there on the page. All you have to do is open your eyes and watch it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad that we were able to give you that fuck you moment, finally, oh, in this episode. Yes, it's yes. been simmering for By the five, way, six episodes. how do we get away with saying the F-bomb now? Shh, that's how did that happen? Are we allowed? Nobody are, knows. It's the golden age of television, they don't know. <laughs> It's a golden age of, yeah, I know. Right. We, got to, we can say the F-bomb now. It well, is, this blows my mind that we can do this. Well, we're, there, trying, yeah, we're not going to, we're trying not to overuse our, uh, overuse our privilege. Yeah. Use them when they're, when they're needed, and it is really... Well, it is yeah, so appropriate yeah, yeah, yeah. in that scene. Oh, yeah. If everybody on the show was constantly dropping F-bombs, then Howard saying that really wouldn't have to be. Dead. If this were, coming out if of this me, were, yeah. If this were Deadwood, if this were Deadwood, you know, it would be like, that would just, you know, you'd be having a beer together and say that. And it, it's, uh, <laughs> so it it's, 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 it's all context, context is everything. That's some great fucking dialogue. Well, I think what's really great is also, in my mind, acts as a bookend to in episode 402 of this season when Kim unloads on Howard. Mm-hmm. She still has her arm in the cast, and that's a very powerful, cathartic moment. And I think also a surprising moment because it's been plotted out both with behavior and actions and words that this was not to be expected, and especially at that moment when it comes out and the and the way it is unleashed has such impact. And in the same respect, now here we are at four oh six, and the ramifications of the one-two punch of Howard getting you know screwed over by Jimmy in the, in the first episode, and then getting bitch slapped by by Kim in the second has festered me into that, you know, that awful bathroom scene. I can't believe, Jen Bryan wardrobe, I'm so sorry. They made me take the tie pin off. They made me have my tie disheveled. I didn't want it. They forced me to do it. And then I, here I am in 406, probably at my lowest, without a doubt. Uh, yeah, you so far. Oh, yeah. So had far. shaved. Yeah. Which, you know, for those of you who are watching at home, yes, it probably takes me about six weeks advance notice to run up to a beard. But that's a different, different conversation, really. You look I'm like fine. the world's most handsome bum in this scene. <laughs> But it was a very satisfying moment to do, uh, and also with Bob, you know, Bob's really good at sort of uh, coming at it from different uh, angles and different uh, levels as well. He has his own opinions about that, and it provoked different reactions. And of course, I feel a bit like, am I still talking? I am. Sorry, guys. But it still makes me feel like... That's what this whole thing is. It's just just us talking. Like, Jen gave me, uh, fuck you. And like you said, it's, it's, it's a big ace. It's a card to play. And you don't want to, pardon the phrase, you know, fuck it up. So so how do you deliver it? How do you make it? And of course, as soon as you start making it, if you can see me right now, I'm making the, the, the serious face. I'm squinting. I'm furrowing my brow. And it's so overthinking the moment. Because in the end, going back to what I said two minutes ago, listening to Bob and having him poke me in a certain way and reacting accordingly, that's the sort of thing that gets a good reaction, I think, ultimately in the end. Pre-planning that great fuck you that's coming up at the end of the scene is just death, I think, for any actor. Thinking about it actor. too. Thinking about it too hard. Sure. So you don't you don't stand do in front of the mirror going trying 
Fuck you. Fuck you. <laughs> well, for, Fuck you. First of all, Peter, what I do at home really is not your business or the podcast. <laughs> and yes, there's, there's plenty of mirror time for me. I, I, won't, I, won't, I won't lie about that. That's my, don't, don't fuck with my process. Okay? <laughs> Chris, I know you're going to get to this, but I have to say, Jump also, right in, also this is, just to mention, this is the episode that introduces not just this crazy-ass warehouse yes but also also yeah. this group uh, werner's ah, guys the, yeah yes. the, germans. the germans yes and 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 jenny can you talk about creating how many how many germans are there here i believe there are seven total germans yeah. i think that's including werner yeah right yeah, yeah there's yes. seven germans Seven. Um, yeah, no, we knew we were going to do this for a while. We had talked about this sort of idea, I think, even last season. Um, the warehouse was a thing that was like a newer invention, um, putting these two um, these two trailer homes inside of a giant warehouse, uh, which was one of those like weird things that comes up in the room. And you're like, yeah, whatever, we're not going to do that. And then, of course, you end up doing it, and you have this wonderful – you know, art department that makes this stuff happen and locations which found this ridiculously huge warehouse, which is funny because the warehouse you see on camera, that's about half the warehouse because the rest of it is falling off kind of into shadow in the background because this thing is like unimaginably huge, um, which was also a bit of an interesting problem because when you're writing a scene, you think, oh, it's going to be a big warehouse and there are going to be two houses and then you'll have a little courtyard in the front. But then you get in there and it's like five, six, ten times bigger than you imagine it in your head. It is so big. Yeah, so it's yeah. a challenge for, you know, Andrew, the director, to stage yeah. that. And and um, the big thing that I think which goes into thinking about all these Germans is um, there's so much space that people have to traverse uh, that you need a lot of what we call pocket dialogue, which is basically the dialogue that is not featured. So background talk. Um, and we didn't really plan for that when we were writing it because it just didn't seem like we would need it. And then, of course, we get there and there's like a long walk. Um, mm-hmm. And we have we have six six German German dudes, um, which was also sort of interesting trying to figure out um, how many we needed. Of course, we have our main our main sort of wily German Kai, who is you know the smartass Ben, um, ben who is uh, great and very charismatic, which is great because you have sort of a you have a character who's supposed to be a bit of a jerk. You want to you want an actor who can kind of hold that hold your attention in a way where you're not you're kind of like I want to punch him, but you also you know <laughs> like him too. And how often do we see somebody stand up to Mike like this? Yes. Just like. <laughs> poke Mike in the face. Like right out of the gate. What's up? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Seems ill-advised. It does. Hey there. I'm interrupting the conversation for a minute to give you a little something extra. When we recorded last week's podcast, Kara Pifko started talking about uh, Ben, who plays Kai. And of course, these characters hadn't been introduced yet. So let's dive back in time and hear a little bit of that. One of your other Germans was a natural German. You don't quite realize the effect that you're having or how the one choice affects another, Ben Bellaboom. Yes. So he's a a friend of mine from before the show. Yeah. We've had our paths crossed, and so we saw each other on set. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. 
And because that's a really good impression of him. And, <laughs> <laughs> but he was planning on going back to Germany. And then this came through. And so he stayed a good chunk extra. And I think he's back there again now. So go for the truthful Germans. Now, Kara, yes. it's interesting that you say that because that implies that there are going to be more Germans coming. I don't yeah. know anything. <laughs> no, you know what? I'm going to. Oh God! You know what I'll ben do? Ben doesn't exist. You know what I'll do is I'll, I'll I will drop that little clip into the six podcast. Oh, Great. excellent! Yeah, Smart. that's thank you. For because how amazing that's is it? Nice. You, that's, you, that's crazy. You guys that you know, know each other totally. He's really good. He's I, so I really, sweet. He's so I nice, really, and he's a fabulous actor. Yeah, he, uh, just boy, the depth he, is all there. So you're just like ready to dive in. He seems like he's going to be real trouble for Mike. And then all these, and then these other guys, what was interesting about that was like, you know, these guys presumably know each other. So, you know, getting these actors together in, in advance of the scene, getting them to kind of form some sort of connections, figuring out who kind of falls together naturally, who might be friends, and then what their dynamic is. And, and so much of the characters, they kind of have to bring that to them. You know, like, this one's a little more studious. This one's, you know, kind of the jokester. Yeah. So that was sort of interesting. And then just seeing them interact, I know being on set with them was really helpful for me because again, you know, I was able to kind of figure out who they were a little bit more. And like when we get to those things like pocket dialogue and 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 later sequences, like how are you going to direct like that action kind of on the page so that when you come into those big scenes, you're giving the director and the cast like more to work with. And you know? for any actors out there, when you get pocket dialogue, do not discount it. Oh. Do not think, oh, it's definitely going to be off camera because they called it pocket dialogue. Never, ever memorize it like it is the regular script and have it down cold because you don't know on the day when you get there, then all of a sudden the DP or the director goes, oh, you know what? It might be fun. How about we have a tracking shot with these guys in the golf cart and we'll just go with them for 50 yards and all of a sudden your pocket dialogue that you didn't memorize because you, well, you kind of know it and the camera's on you and it's first thing in the day and I'll tell you, you'll never feel colder on the back of your neck when you has, don't know it. Has that ever happened to you? <laughs> no, sounds like, of course sounds not. Like you're from experience. Experience. <laughs> and, and Jenny, Jenny, do you, do you speak did you, do you speak German? Did you write the pocket dialogue in German? Oh, absolutely not. Um, no, I do not speak German. Um, a little Romanian. Right. Some of our, um, I mean, Ben is German, and um, most of our actors playing Germans all speak German, either are native speakers or learn German. And then we have a German translator who is there, obviously, um, Rainer, who plays Werner, is German. Um, he's there. He's always there kind of giving feedback. Um, and yes, yeah, so we had our German translator on set who was there, able to listen. And a lot of times, too, some of when we didn't have a lot of pocket dialogue, we might have them kind of um, ad-libbing in the background. So like having someone who speaks German listening so that they can say, oh, this is what they were talking about. Yeah. Um, and, you know, what's appropriate for the scene is really, really helpful. Um, so yeah, so no, I would write it in English and then she would translate it. And then the thing you have to think about is slang and sort of their age. And, you know, it can't just be this is, if I tried to do it, it would be the most formal German possible probably because I would, you know, be trying to make it all grammatical where she can say this is what's going to be more common usage. And, and Ben obviously had opinions about conversational between friends. How close of friends are they? Because there are different rules in, in how they would talk to each other. So all that stuff you have to think of. It's very, yeah, we had to, because we already have a show that runs generally in two languages, yeah. English and Spanish. Now we had to introduce another German. language, German. Yes. So where? what's next? Yes. 
And I, I just also have to give props to um, Robin Sweet, our, our producer in Albuquerque, who made this giant warehouse happen. Yeah. Uh, it was it was such a complex operation to get this warehouse to get to get it dressed. And also, the uh, I mean, this is one of those wrinkles that you don't think about, or at least I wouldn't think about ahead of time. The lights in mm-hmm. that warehouse all buzzed when we when we arrived. They yeah. all buzzed. It was unusable for sound with the lights on. Which of course, if you're if you're in a manufacturing facility, who cares if the lights buzz? It's is not that a big, what that was? It's, it's not a, a big deal. Solar yes. panel it was factory. S- yeah. Solar panel, man. Yeah. Closed that's, down now. That's yeah. a little sad. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's, it's a solar panel manufacturing facility, or was, and um, they didn't care if the lights buzzed. Sure. Uh, so, but we had to, so that's, we had to replace all the lights that you see. Me and Peter. Yes, Vince and I. Vince and I. I held the ladder while I held the ladder while Vince Stop shaking the ladder, Peter. Yeah, but that was Mark Melee, and and of course Robin made it happen in a lot of ways. In Mark Melee, uh, at our, our on electric our electric group crew, and and it, they they all had to go through that, change out all those lights. I I just mention it because, uh, you know. When you watch it, you don't think about any of that stuff, or at yeah. least I don't. And it's it's well, it's really and Andrew shot it remarkably. It, it makes such a big oh, visual yeah. impression. Yeah. Uh, it it is it is fascinating, and of course you'll find out more about how this whole thing, this whole operation works in future episodes. Well, the fun thing about the lights is that we had to replace the lights so they wouldn't buzz on the day. But then when you do the sound mix, you add light yeah. buzzing yeah, exactly. to the sound <laughs> mix as because you want to create that room. It's maddening. You know, yeah, yeah. You got to take so, all the crap out it, just so you can add, add it back, back in later. And, and so. you, ha- you, have to do, you have to do that because if you recorded it live, it would be different in every yeah. shot because the mm-hmm. microphone points in a different spot. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, a lot of what we do, I keep thinking about this in post a lot of what we do is about we spend a lot of time and effort trying to create the illusion that things are happening continuous time that the shots all go together and match and and the sound if we didn't if we weren't worried about that things would they would make our lives a little bit easier and of course the other thing I want to mention too which you wouldn't again you wouldn't think about was when Mike goes into that trailer and there are those monitors and they all have it we had to shoot all those images all those Im- all the imagery that goes on those monitors has to be shot. So all the ex- exterior and interior and the guys playing basketball, those are all shot on actual security cameras that we put up. But the you know Andrew and 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 you guys had to actually go out and shoot all that stuff, and it's it's just it's remarkably and, and complicated. I'm be dumb here, wait. So you, so you mean like that shot isn't that? It's not like it's not live, right? It's not live. No, no. it's not live. really stupid, but no. I'm just like, no, no it was not live. No, it's a good question. That was all burning. So we filmed it while we were filming in, the, when we were filming the scenes in the trailer, we had our, you know, German crew in the warehouse and we were rolling on those security cameras for, you know, however long. So they were playing basketball and whatnot. And so we had both of those things kind of going on at the same time. In the trailer, um, that's burn in like we put that in later in post but we actually did have stuff on the monitors because um for the light yeah the ambient ambient light in the scene and you could show it live on the monitors it's burned in like yeah you could jenny said uh, burned in just because you can't scheduling wise usually get that that part shot beforehand 
So that's why you burn it in. You don't burn it in because you have to. You burn it in because scheduling-wise you don't have it shot yet. But it's yeah, often yeah. better to have the flexibility, too, to yeah. be able to feature the exact moment you want and not have to worry about capturing it exactly at the yeah. right time. Yeah. So, yeah, so we went through how many cameras were there? Like 20 uh, or something? I think it was like 24 or something. Two takes of 24 cameras paired together. So I think we only had eight monitors. Right. So, so we got to pick, pick yeah. from all that material to eight times three. So yeah, eight. So you could yeah eight monitors, and then you could you could cycle through three different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Good God. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a lot, it's a lot of material to go through and to kind of find those right moments. And unlike the regular cameras, which have a time code that is fed to them, these things are not connected in any way. So we have to create that figure it out well you kind of have to look for things where the same action is happening when that's possible because there's nothing to sync them up and so we it's kind of like looking you know looking for a needle in a stack of needles so you get two sets images of of them playing basketball the guys playing basketball and you have to figure out you're you're going to try to show them on two monitors and you Mm -hmm. want them to be playing the ball to be bouncing in exactly the same moment and you just have to figure it out you to oh, find there's the third bounce to figure, on yes. this one. There's the third bounce on that one, and it's in a different place yes. in each, oh. you know, each roll. So it's, madness. Yes, it can Stop be tough. Stop and Chris McCaleb. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is hard, I'm sure. It's, I know you're going to mention the cameos in this episode too. Right? Well, yeah, I mean, we, I mean, we, we're, we're skipping around, and I know we're going to run out of time, and I know I say that every single time, but a lot of times in uh, when you're cutting a scene. You might have somebody on the phone or you might have uh, you might temp dialogue in that you don't have yet. And uh, in this scene, uh, Jimmy is at CC Mobile doing his job that where nobody ever comes in to where he works. He's the Maytag repairman. It's a low, yeah, <laughs> yeah, low impact. But but he gets uh, he gets a call with some really bad news. And for the first time this season anyway, we're we're really seeing the effects of grief on him. And it's not about his brother. It's about Mrs. Strauss, mm. who we remember as the the woman who he put in one of his first commercials, the, the, the Sandpiper commercial yeah. uh, that got uh, everybody into so much trouble. From Alpine Shepherd Boy, right? Wasn't that the first time she, we saw her? That was the first time we uh, saw yeah. her. Yeah. yeah. That was right. Correct. Yes. What a grand entrance. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Coming, coming, down, <laughs> coming down the stairs. We yeah. should all be so lucky. Very true. Awesome. Yeah. And uh, and so when they when you're on set, somebody, you know, sometimes you've already hired an actor or sometimes there is an actor, but uh, on the set, uh, the director, Andrew Stanton, who is himself an actor, but he was not intending to be in the show, he read with Bob. And yeah. so, you know, he had a, and you know, not only was he able to direct it, but he also is, you know, able to give Bob good feedback and, you know, make it feel very real. Well, when we're cutting it, uh, Andrew, we, we basically, we did it with Joey. We, you know, that was the temp audio that we did. And Joey was very good. You know, we did several takes and, and Joey, you know, it was, it was so totally, he, used, you know, it was like it so worked. So he was playing Mrs. Strauss's nephew who's Correct. calling who's calling yeah. Jimmy Brett about, Dunst. about Brett her. Dunst. Brett yeah. Dunst. Brett Dunst is a friend of uh, my husband's, uh, I believe they went to school together, <laughs> who for Halloween, I think last year, did a full Cinnabon Jean costume. Wow. wow. Like, uh, I think he even contacted, like, corporate to try to get, like, official logo stuff for, like, That's yeah. Awesome. yeah. He, he put a lot, and I brought it, he 
he sent a photo and I brought it into the writer's room to show everybody and everybody loved it and he's a huge fan and I was like I gotta put his name in the script and so so Brett Dunst is a is a person and uh, nice. we put him in the script. And Joey plays him. And Joey plays him. Yeah, did we use Joey because we didn't have to pay him? Is that how that No, worked? we did have to pay him. We yeah. had to pay him extra. And we, we had paid to be, you? You paid me had for to that. Be, yeah. uh, but just for that, not for, not for the other services. <laughs> right. Right. And they, just for this one yeah, thing. Hey, Joey, 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 Joey. Just, just so you know, you're, you're not going to get a trailer bigger than mine. <laughs> <laughs> okay? At, at least till the Brett spinoff, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. The, the only lead character that's only on the phone? Utah businessman. Dunst checks. In. Yeah. Um, oh. And that has been our show. Thank you very much. But there's more. Not only did, was there Joey, but there's he's talking to someone else at the beginning of the scene when he's trying to f- try to see if they can get a big sign for this Wexler McGill office that he's dreaming of. And again, we just tempt it's the editorial players, the post-production players, and Carly, our post-production coordinator, she tempted in and and she is also the final voice. And it's not like we just use them. We they went into a real studio, the same place that that Patrick, that you would go Only to smaller. record your ADR. <laughs> Only yes, yes, they used a much smaller booth for no snacks. Yeah, no crudite. For, hey, please yeah. tell me we didn't pay Carly. We definitely oh, paid Carly. No. Peter, how are we going to make money on this thing? Yeah. <laughs> They're going to leave us, too. Paying They're going to leave us to get into voice but work. But it, it was so Jesus. fun. It was, you know, the the like a few days before the mix, uh, Joey and Carly le- had to leave the office in the middle of the day to go to a booth somewhere and, you know, sort of recreate their performances. And uh, they both did a fantastic job. And, uh, I mean, that's that's... It's a real role. I mean, especially yeah. Joey. That that's a. I mean, that and to if if the tone of it isn't quite right, it just doesn't feel right. And all of the, the excellent acting that Bob is doing in that moment, it could be completely derailed. Yeah. yeah, yeah. By, Joey, did it? Was was it nerve wracking? It was very nerve wracking. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, it was one of the weirder things about. Uh, doing that compared to the podcast is these podcast microphones are right in front of our face but in the ADR stage it's just shotgun mics that are just pointed at you so you're just talking like normal into nothing and it apparently all works out at the end after everybody's done with it so Catherine uh, made me sound like I knew what I was doing Catherine the ADR supervisor I didn't realize that they don't put the mic up close is that to make it match better with the stuff that's recorded on the they have several they have the the lobs on you they have Mm -hmm. several different shotguns so it's I think it's interesting getting the room a little bit and Mm -hmm. mixed in with it but um yeah, yeah it was it was very intense so just the being there for that small bit. Oh, that I, I, I know yeah. what you mean. I, mean, yeah. I, I still get, uh, get thrilled and excited and nervous about it because, you know, you kind of feel like, oh, I've done it. And then you show up and you're like, no, you haven't done it. <laughs> <laughs> now you're going to do it. Yeah, so yeah. then you have to sort of get your, your, ga- your game face on. And, but you're right. It's, it's unnatural. You got the thing and the thing and the thing and they're behind you and the screen's going on. And you're like, yeah, I can count three, two, what? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> can we do that again? And then, yeah. you, then you get into a groove and it's, it's, it, it's a focus. I always feel a little exhausted afterwards because mm-hmm. it's a real mental balance beam to like sit on and be on for a little while. And you're right. also, but, but you also have the problem sometimes, which Joey didn't have, of trying to, do you have to match your lips when you're doing your lip sync? Yeah, you have to you're sync. You're trying to match your old performance? Uh, yeah, yeah. But weirdly, and maybe not weirdly, I'm I'm pretty good at playing me, if that makes any sense. <laughs> <laughs> so, so so consequently, like when I hear a rhythm of the way I've spoken, 
and it's it's a flub or something that they need some clarity or uh, I can pretty much start to uh, repeat myself back into it. And you get a couple of runs at it and then all of a sudden you literally get a groove, which is weird, but yet not because it was it's me on the screen and it's me in life. So you sort of get that rhythm and your body sort of naturally goes. It's when you have to try and change the tone of what you've said wow. and your lips are locked into a certain cadence, which it, is when it gets tricky, mm-hmm. which is not very often you have to do that sort of thing. But way to go, Joey. Congratulations. Oh, thank you very much. Like, and you. not everybody knows what that's like. So kudos to you. But yeah, every, everybody, nobody wants to ADR. Like, it, <laughs> you, you're, the best case scenario is you get that performance on the day and yeah. you've got it. But boy, sometimes... There's just there's a problem. There's a sound that just doesn't work, and yeah. you, and you you have to for whatever reason. It's tricky because we're putting the ADR dialogue next to dialogue that was shot live. Right. And, and you know, I, if anybody who's a film buff, you've watched movies, especially Italian movies pre 1980, like the spaghetti westerns. Those are all looped. They would they, the Italians would shoot with yeah. they would shoot with no live sound at all. And it's it's um and everyone's it, speaking a di- their own language. Well, that yeah. too. That Clint Eastwood speaking English. The other actors are speaking Italian. And blah, you get blah, used blah. you get used to it. You get used to it, and it's 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 interesting. But what we have to do, what Catherine has to do, and we have to shoot ADR. Catherine Madsen, our amazing AD, her, we her credit is ADR supervisor, but she is like a dialogue magician. She really is. And she is. also has yeah, she, she yeah. also has um she's the one who's there with you guys, right? When you're when you're shooting ADR usually. Yeah. And she really has to understand the scene and the characters and uh she she has, she is she is really marvelous. Well, we uh, trust her. You and know, we it's, don't, it's just yeah. like when you have a good director on set, you know, and and as an actor you inherently trust their direction, and then and then you can sort of relax and, and release and go. And the same thing again, like Joey was saying, you know, you're a little nervous. It's sort of unnatural now. You're trying to recreate something that you sort of was already in the moment three months ago, and and Catherine's there to be like, oh, that's it, and then this, and then that. Try that again. And she has a real good way of sort of dialing you into yourself, and then letting you rip it, and then and then she'll be like, we've got it. Do you want to do something for yourself? You know, and then you invariably your ego takes over. And you're like, oh yeah, because I can do it better, and then you completely fuck it up. So. <laughs> she's, she is, she is, she is, uh, and you know, this is, you know, I, one of the things I love about doing the podcast is the spotlight. You know, you see, when you're when you're watching these shows, you see a name flick by, and you see, you know, something ADR supervisor, and it sounds like, you know, I, I don't know if I if I didn't know better, or maybe when I started out, I would have pictured somebody in a dark room pushing a button. Uh, and it's yes, there are dark rooms and there are buttons, but she is she is an artist. Um, she is an artist, and she her taste is her taste in performance is just is remarkable. She's she's an unsung unsung heroine. And I also I I'm, I know I know I'm not trying to not trying to, to take over your podcast, but I just I podcast. have to say I have to say one thing. This is also. Uh, Jenny's episode here, Jenny and Andrew's episode. This is also the episode where Jimmy goes really dark, yes. and there is that yeah. remarkable, yeah. that I guess remarkable. We talk about pinatas. Yes, pinata scene. Yeah, the thing is called pinata. The, the it's titular called pinata. Pinata. Yeah. So, so Sony was upset because the pinata budget on this episode was way higher. <laughs> oh my god! Pissed off about that. Yeah. I mean, this, you know, the pinatas themselves, I mean, that was sort of a, an amazing feat kind of coordinated between um, special effects, 
because, you know, they get hit and they have to break, which if you've ever been at a party with a pinata, that is so not the case. You know, you have to really hammer those things before they'll break. So we needed them to break on on command, you know, when the guys hit them. Um, Props, you know, our department. Like, this was a real – and we built this entire set. This was a set that we built on stage. Um, And so, like – Rigging that, and then also stunts, because we're literally hanging three guys, you know, upside down. So this was like a highly technical, technical marvel, and just getting um, that many pinatas. We had to have double, look, not even doubles. We had to have multiples right. of these pinatas because each take, oh, yeah. you know, uh, Huel and Man Mountain are hitting them and breaking them, and we've got candy going everywhere. So mm-hmm. this was like. This was a lot, and I have never in my life seen so many pinatas just in one space. And they were amazing because I was like, "Oh, it's gonna be like some hats and some donkeys," and like it was incredible. Like just like the variety of pinatas. The only thing is, is like if you had a birthday party or some sort of celebration in those few weeks when we did that in that area, I'm really sorry because you could not find a pinata for like miles and miles because we just bought out every single pinata. Yeah, no, it was pretty incredible. um, and and a really also a really kind of scary sequence to do because we are hanging guys upside down and right. that's very very technical. Yeah, um, I, yeah. I I remember because uh, I, I I think it was sort of discovering a couple of days before shooting that scene that there was going to be a maximum amount of time that those three guys could be yes. hanging upside down for oh. safety concerns. Well, because I was going to ask how long that is. Does it's about know? a minute fifteen. Wow. Uh, and, I think it's a minute. 30 total but you have to stop the scene and allow time to lower them because you have to lift them up it's the second they're off the floor to the second they land so you can't be you can't be doing a scene for a minute and a half. Yeah. You, it's like however long it takes to get out. Little, yeah, a little less than a minute. Yeah. Well, how do so, they figure of, that of out? Of scene time. How do they figure um, that I mean, out? Broke our, the scene up into parts. Yeah. Well, no, but I'll, I mean, how do they figure out There, a, There are rules, and Al Goto, who is our yeah. stunt coordinator, he's, you know, he has a whole team. They're up on all that. So the actors, that's how long for the actors. For the stunt performers, it's slightly longer. Oh, okay. So those guys could be hanging upside down for longer. Gotcha. Um, and two it's hours. also yeah, two they're still there. <laughs> they're stunt guys. Like, they can do it for like two like hours. That's like three minutes, no maybe two to three minutes. I mean, it's yeah, not that much longer. But also, you bring you put the actors up, yeah. and you and you have to listen to them because you can pass out really easily and yeah. don't really realize it's happening. So they have to have like there are so many safety meetings, and they have to have a real open dialogue with the stunt team who is you know bringing them up. Um, um, so yeah, it was, it, it's, I mean, it's always scary doing stunts, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, just, and, and then also trying to do a scene, which is supposed exactly. to be kind of a long yeah. continuous yes. scene it's, and, and, it's, and doing all that. It's Correct. quite a long scene and quite an intense scene. Yes. And to yeah. be, and, and the fact that every, about every 45 seconds they have to stop yeah. Yeah, yeah, no yeah. matter where they are, no matter, oh, let's do it again. They can't. And they would have, cause because wow. as we've talked about on, on this podcast many times, Safety is always the number one priority yeah. on a set, and nothing overrules that. And so when it's they, they had a timer, and you'd hear a timer go off and stop, and they had to bring them down. And it was uh, I, I'm sure that when you're as an actor and as as a director and as really as the entire crew, it I and as an editor receiving that footage, it can be frustrating. But it's everybody realizes that it's way more important. <laughs> For yeah. everybody to be safe, Chris, and I, to be a little bit frustrated. I have I have a, a creative question for you. You know, sure. you have a scene here where 
you have three characters suspended upside down. You were, we were just talking about the problems with shooting it. But you have them suspended upside down. Um, and in the final product, there are some shots where they're tur- the, this whole scene is turned right side up. Some scenes, and I know, I know Andrew had a storyboard for all this. I saw it. It was beautiful. Uh, but there are some shots where they're turned upside down. There are some shots that are right side up. You first seen Jimmy. He comes out of the darkness. He's upside down. Uh, is that something that's determined? Do they shoot with the camera upside down, or is that something you, you're? Is that something you're controlling? And if you do control it, how do you decide whether a shot should be right side up or upside down? Well, it was. I mean, they shoot everything. It's a great question. They, the only thing that was shot, quote unquote, upside down, though. I mean, uh, was the very first shot of the sequence when uh, Rocco is yanked up into position and the camera is attached to him and which is such a cool shot such a cool shot um but as we when i was cutting the scene it felt like the scene starts sort of in their perspective so keeping them what the orientation it's sort of like when when they say like astronauts there is no up or down in space. There's no directionality, so they have to create it because otherwise their brains, it, you, you st- I think they start going crazy. And we didn't want to make anybody have astronaut brain uh, watching the show. So, so it, it, I want an astronaut watch. It just, and an astronaut time. ice cream. But uh, it, 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 felt, it felt very disorienting to be suddenly, you know, he's what would be right side up and the world is upside down and then flipping out and, and suddenly being upside down and not right side up. And, and so when I was putting the scene together, I just started flipping the shots and staying in their perspective for the beginning part. And so then when Jimmy came out, he was upside down because that's how, the boys would be experiencing it. They would be seeing it upside down and then knowing it. And a lot of that was because when that, when you first see them in the, like all three of them in that wide shot, it was so weird and interesting that the way that that shot played upside down with those shafts of light and the, the guys hanging there and Jimmy, you know, on the ceiling basically. And so, uh, but we, we knew we couldn't play the whole scene like that because that would be a, a totally different disorientation nightmare of like everything being upside down. So um, the what I thought would work and it ultimately did work was uh, that it would flip the sort of orientate our viewers orientation would flip when Jimmy rips the tape off, and that way you got the you got to start the scene with that kind of disorientation and then settle into it and then you weren't thinking like jesus how long is this scene going to be upside down um so and it, it seemed like it works pretty well it's it, yeah it's fascinating it's and, fantastic. And in it's the spirit of full experience. disclosure i came into your editing room and and you you've given a good synopsis but the devil as always like vince says the devil's in the details so yeah they're upside down their point of view is upside down but then you see the bat dragging along the floor and that's right side up. Right. And I came into the editing room. I said, "Oh, let's turn that. Let's try turning that upside down." And right. we tried it, and it just didn't work. And so it's so fascinating to me yeah. that you can make a rule for yourself. And I guess now that I think about it, it's probably because the boys weren't really seeing the bat. 
mm-hmm. but why or the guys hitting the pinatas? They but why that should you? In an, why should you have to tease that out and make a theory about it, and the audience apprehends it immediately? And it's it's the fascinating. Huh. This is one of the things that's I'm so fascinated by film language. Yeah, and it's it's something that that. Um, uh, we have the glory of being uh, getting to experiment with some of this stuff in the editing room, and but I think we ended up leaving it all exactly the way you had it when I first saw it. Even though yeah. we tried flipping things we back and forth we in a lot, a lot of different of ways. Experimenting, yeah, for we did. Sure. Well, that's what's great about digital editing and working on an Avid is that you can, you, you have the license to experiment uh, almost in an infinite way whereas like we've i mean i'm sure we've talked about it when you're cutting on film you know you have to get a reprint which is expensive and you gotta you know you gotta re you know reconstitute things and it's just a lot things would take forever a lot you know a lot more time and chris way did, more expensive chris did you ever cut on film i uh in film school i did oh, okay and i <laughs> i worked on one movie that cut on film i worked on a john sales movie where i was did you? Yeah, I worked on Sunshine State. Oh wow! Um, yeah, which is a, is a really really good little movie. It's it's a very you know small simple story, and uh, it was shot in Florida. And I was I was on location uh, for that movie, oh, wow. and I, I worked in the cutting room, and I I got to pop tracks and the, you know you, the the sound used to be separate from the picture and True. so you'd have to sync them up use and that I got gang to, synchronizer thing yes yeah. and <laughs> the, you had to yeah. use these coding machines where you would oh. print the, they were the, the nastiest smell oh, uh, no. they would just print, hot print this these code numbers onto the the audio so that you could actually sync it back up to the picture if anything ever got without lost. starting at the beginning right yeah, yeah. so it was it, it everything was much more laborious oh, yeah. um the, <laughs> did you get to be with did you meet john sales oh yeah oh he was there and in addition to that i was also projecting the dailies and we we had we watched dailies at the end of every production day yeah. which wow. and john sales works so quickly that they they were able they were always ahead of us so they would get back, you know, they'd they'd wrap Damn. their day, and then we would be scrambling to get, uh, you know, enough of the yeah. the dailies together to show them, you know, at the what end was, of the day. What was John Sales like? Uh, he's incredibly nice. He's a genuine guy. He uh, he's he's he can be kind of quiet because he's you know he's he's writing and directing it, and he's he edits the movies too. Although Damn. he he for on that movie and for a very long time had an associate editor who herself is now a very well established and well respected editor named Plummy Tucker who is fantastic and um, you know she was essentially she was assembling things and making sure that they had things and she could say hey I think you're missing this or that and but he you know he he really he shoots like an editor, and he knows what he's looking for. I was respected the hell out of him. He's what a great writer and director. Oh yeah, and I was respected him for he would make money writing stuff that you know as a as a script doctor fixing stuff or just writing stuff that he probably would not be his idea of. Eh, I want to be spending a lot of time on this, but he'd make 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 some quick dough doing a rewrite job or writing some movie or other, and then he'd take that money. And he'd, you know, and use it to make his own movies. I, I really, that's, that's, that's an independent filmmaker. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That I is mean, using your own the, money. That is, of, I, I always respected that. One of the godfathers of independent Yeah, cinema. I, I think, don't think people talk enough about him. I think I he's agree. great. One of the first, I think maybe the first, uh, is it, 
I'll, I promise I won't do any more old man stories after this. <laughs> One of the first sets I was ever on, I was an extra when I was a film student on a movie called uh, Baby It's You. Yeah, which is, really? Which was John, John Sayles direct, wrote and directed. And uh, it, was a, it was a very special set. It was Michael Bauhaus's first American film, wow. the great... Michael Bauhaus, director of photography, and the guy that shot it, Das Boot. That's uh, no, he did not. I don't oh, believe he did okay. shoot okay, Das Boot, but he yeah. did shoot. He shot a lot of great Scorsese movies, oh, like yeah. After Hours, and, and a lot, a lot of. He's, he was Michael Bauhaus, and Florian Bauhaus is now his son is is now a DP who is one another wonderful DP, and my, I was fascinated by the way Michael Bauhaus lit the scene, and then I got to see it was the last shot of the movie. And they had this this relatively new piece of equipment called a Steadicam, which was operated by the inventor of the Steadicam, wow. Garrett Brown. Wow. And the thing that impressed me the most about, and I never talked to John Sayles, although I did talk to some members, speaking members of the cast. Uh, and the thing that fascinated me about John Sayles, he was there. He helped nail something in to get the uh, Garrett Brown was going to step onto a crane, and, and and John Sales was right there with him, helping to place the platform and getting his hands dirty, and and just look very you know. And he was in a direct. Now looking back, he was a director on a very low budget movie. It was probably his biggest scene, a couple hundred extras, including me, and yet he was he just exuded calm. Which very is cool. which I really uh, I just respect so much. Yeah, so, yeah, very cool, really cool it's, guy. It's I mean it's very much the, like <clears throat> the thing that we talk about here is that it whoever's at the top really sets the tone. And I'm we, sitting right here, Chris. I'm sitting right here. It's well, and, and it's, <laughs> it's, it's high time we get into it. No, it, it, you know, and when when people have a oh we have one more minute. Oh, okay. I, basically, anyway, it, the people at the top, you know, if people at the top set a tone of calm and and um, kindness and respect, that falls throughout everybody else. And it, 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 they, they set the tone in a very similar way. John and his producing partner, Maggie Renzi, they really set the tone and create a, a, a real family environment that makes people want to come back and work hard. And, you know, everybody who goes there, they cut their rates to, in order to work on these movies, but they're, cause they, you know, the budgets are like, sort of like he does. He goes and he works on the big things for the money. And then, you know, you get to kind of come back and work with your family. So, um, I think Chris is sending us a message, Peter. <laughs> He's like going to take a pay rate, a pay rate cut. I, I, I stopped listening when he said cut, cut and pay. I don't know what he's talking about. That sounds very interesting. Officially, I am definitely not. You have fun in film message. school, anyway. So. Um, well, I like as 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 Jen Carroll just said, we're we, we're about to start another podcast. So, thank you guys. Thank you, Jenny. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Patrick, for thank coming. You. And, and uh, as always, Peter and Vince. Thank and you. Joey. And thank Joey, you, Chris McCaleb. For, well, thank That's you. my new thing. I'm just going to call you Chris McCaleb. I'm, I'm cool yeah. with it. Alicia will not call me anything but my full first and last name. Like it's like share in reverse, isn't it? Yep. Yeah. yeah. He's only known as Chris McCaleb from now on. Mm -hmm. Chris McCaleb. And, uh, so it shall be written. So it shall be done. <laughs> that's true. And, and Joey, thank you for uh, turning in such an awesome performance in this episode. Awesome. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yay. And thank you guys for listening. We hope you guys enjoyed the podcast. And uh, we end every episode of this show by having somebody do their best Bob Odenkirk style Better Call Saul. Um, Patrick, 
Would you do the honors? Don't fuck it up. Is this how I lose my job? Don't think about it too hard. That, that, that thing you're saying Don't earlier. think about it. Act on it right now. You know what you're going to do? On Mondays, you're going to watch Better Call Saul. And on Tuesday, you're going to call the Insider Podcast. Do it now. I mean, I don't know what that was. <laughs> I don't know what that was either. I liked it. Amazing. I liked it. That was I amazing. It. I liked something. Yeah, a, I like it's it. It's an energy burst. I like it. Um, and then we always clap. Cause well, it no- <laughs> give us give us a better call Saul. Just, you know, say, like, just say the, the words better call Saul. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Just uh, say the words oh, better call Saul. <laughs> <laughs> Make sure you better call Saul. Yeah, yeah. that's great. That was a good one.